Welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast where we look at the science behind our favourite TV shows. I'm Karen. I'm Emma, and this episode is called <laughs> Bees, Bras and Bananas, which is an odd name, you might think, for a podcast on the science of Chernobyl, perhaps. But uh, you're going to have to listen all the way through to the end to find out what each of those uh, correspond to. um and don't forget to listen out for quotes from the show or nuclear power actually we've got a couple of nuclear power puns in there as well so we're going to try and shoe her on those into the episode so listen out for them it's pretty tough to find them actually chernobyl Mm. doesn't have quite so many um standout quotes as maybe some of the sitcoms that we've looked at is it so that was pretty tough this time yeah, but they should be really, really obvious as a consequence, though. So yeah, it's now for them. <laughs> if we sound like we don't quite know what we're on about, maybe it's a quote. <laughs> might be, might be. I mean, Karen. First question, of course. What did you reckon? Did you like it? Are you a fan of the the HBO series Chernobyl? It was. I think it was brilliantly done. I mean, the science was really nice and. I mean, from a sci-com point of view, really, it was really well done. Famous for that, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and then, I mean, there were things like they tried to use materials that would have been available at that time to make the, to make the clothing even, mm. you know, to make it look legitimate on screen. And it did have that kind of washed-out look, didn't it? Of that kind of eighties um, kind of idea in terms of what you imagined Soviet Russia to have been in the time. But, mm, and just the yeah. storytelling of it all, the pacing, everything. Mm. I was on the edge of my seat the entire Even though you all know, you know, yeah. this was a horrible disaster and lots of people are going mm. to have to work very hard and lots of people are going to die, you know that's going to happen because it's yeah. a story. You were, I was still so wrapped up in the characters and so invested. In, it was, yeah, really, really amazing piece of TV as well, as well as a piece of sitcom. But I mean, you know, we are a podcast about science communication. Yeah. So we, we, Felt like we kind of had to do Chernobyl <laughs> at some point, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, you can't you you can't not do it. I mean, there's a lots of science involved. Hey, we're and, ending um, series three with quite a big bang. Yes, oh, well, yes, it turns out a very big bang. And of course, I was around at the time, um, and I was doing my GCSEs at the time, actually, just hanging out uh, in Pripyat. Yeah, yeah, I was exactly. around. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> around doing my GCSEs, ah. and um, I can remember, you know not being able to we weren't allowed to eat welsh lamb for example because of the fallout on the hills in wales and things like that you know oh, wow. it was it was a really weird time i have to mm. say mm, very strange time but we when we were doing the research we found quite an interesting quote actually so there was one of the liquidators that was involved in the disaster was chatting to the series director johan renk mm-hmm. and um, this liquidator was a nuclear engineer and he was responsible for measuring the temperature in the power plant right after the accident good lord imagine, imagine being given job. that job what a job um and, and that's this the is last a quote. time i went about my job <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, So he said, I was scared. I was scared of the dark. I was walking around and I was terrified of the dark. And I was terrified of something falling down onto my head from a collapsing building. The radiation is invisible. I can't feel it. I can't see it. It doesn't affect me directly. So my fears are not activated by that. So he was so worried about the building and the darkness. And he wasn't really thinking about the radiation. And he was a nuclear engineer. It's it's really interesting, isn't it? I, mm. I fighting a, a kind of invisible enemy. You're right. Maybe it, it must be much harder to. Well, hang on. 
that's what we've been doing all year in a much lesser extent, isn't it? The kind of the invisible enemy of a virus yeah. in the air around us. Yeah, it's it's a strange, strange situation. Mm. Quite a scary quote, that. Yeah, particularly mm. in the dark. I mean, you've got to tell the truth. These men, they work in the dark, but they see everything. <laughs> um, and there's the first quote for you, ladies and gentlemen. Very, uh, fans... very badly shoehorned in. <laughs> so as fans of the show, hopefully you'll be able to spot them quite easily. Um, and we'll give you a full list at the end, as we said. So before we dive into some of the science, mm-hmm. ugh, I sounded like I wanted to go to sleep. So <laughs> before we dive into some of the science, Mm. let's have a little plan of our post-pandemic holidays shall we okay okay yeah all right we haven't seen Mm. each other in a while let's take a trip no chernobyl was actually declared safe to visit as a tourist attraction in 2011 so it's actually become quite a famous place to go on your holidays so what do you reckon would would you go well i'm quite up for it actually i'm quite interested in that idea i had a friend from school canadian friend and she went um and it was just an amazing experience for her um, there's a, it's that kind of apocalypse idea though isn't it and and some people find that a little bit offensive um that you're going there for that kind of dark apocalypse tourism, tourism. Isn't it? yeah yeah but actually i'd just be really interested to go um just to see what it's like and you know get get an idea of the space and and how wildlife has taken over that's the bit mm. that interests me is yeah. you know how would the wildlife take of over the land is pretty mm. it's pretty fascinating yeah yeah definitely yeah so so yes i would my husband not not keen Okay, well, I'll go with you. We'll leave him. We'll leave him at home. Yeah, I'd be pretty fascinated to see it. I have to admit, it's not. It's Mm. not at the top of my list by a long shot, but I wouldn't say no. I think. Yeah. So now you'd think the science behind the show would be pretty obvious. And indeed, there is some obvious science that we yes. will explore, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there are actually lots of myths in TV and film about nuclear radiation, aren't there? Lots yeah. of things that we can debunk. And lots of weird and wonderful rabbit holes for us to go down, of course. Is yes. anyone wearing a hot pink bra today? Anyone? No? no? <laughs> um, and what do, you know, what do bananas have to do with Chernobyl? Is radioactivity going to turn us into a superhero? That's right. We are asking and answering the important questions yes, in this podcast. absolutely. Of course. Yeah. Um, so we'll be busting some myths, like you said, and we've, we've got some genuinely brilliant, silly science <laughs> coming up later. But I mean, I feel like let's ha- we've got to start with the obvious, haven't we? We've got to look yeah. a little bit of nuclear physics in case mm-hmm. we don't all remember it from school. I certainly didn't remember it all from school. So let's have a quick explore of the graphite-covered background to the episode. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> and then we can divert back into some of the kind of the science nonsense. So um, let's let's take the start of the of the actual disaster itself, you know, mm. when it started to happen. And when we think about the temperature, you know, we talked about that liquidator who was measuring the temperature um, just after the explosion. But in fact, just before the explosion, the reactor reached... 4,650 degrees Celsius. Goodness me. I mean, that is warm, isn't it? I mean, to put that into context, the sun's surface is around 5,500. It is 23 degrees today. And I am am baking. Yeah. And the explosion ejected at least 28 tonnes of highly radioactive material into the immediate environment. And it's estimated that between 150 and 200 million curies of radioactivity was released. So this is the equivalent, basically, to around 100 times the amount of radioactivity that was released from the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. 100 times that. 
that's shocking, isn't it? Mm, it's pretty scary. Absolutely shocking. Yeah, and and the fact that they just didn't realise initially that mm. it was a, a problem until they saw the graphite on the ground, like you said. Mm. Um, so let's talk about this fallout then. So so all of this tonnage of fallout, what actually did it contain? Mm. There's, there's a few isotopes that it contained. So one of which was iodine-131. And the problem with iodine-131 is it causes thyroid cancer, but it's got a half-life of eight days. Mm. So the half-life is the time taken for the radioactivity of a radioactive isotope to drop to half of its original value. Yeah. And one of the other isotopes that was uh, chucked out by the fallout was cesium-137. And cesium, it persists in the soil and it also produces gamma rays. Mm. And this is the one that, if you remember in school, we were all taught that's the worst one of all of them. Yeah. Um, and it has a half-life that's a bit longer of approximately 30 years. Yeah. So, so that's it, not... it really will linger in the soil and, uh, for quite a long time. Yeah. And then the, the last one that's really, really significant is plutonium-239. And this is radiotoxic if it's inhaled. And of course, there was a lot of inhalation going on at the time because people didn't realise what had happened. But perhaps crucially, um, and more importantly, its half-life is 24,000 years. Wow. 24,000 years. And there's none naturally um, present in the environment. So anything present in the environment has been man-made from nuclear explosions um, or nuclear it's power, etc. It's so et hard to wrap your head around the impact that humans have had on the planet, isn't it? And when you hear yeah. something like that, something that doesn't exist naturally at all, but will hang around for 24,000 years because of something that we've done. Yeah. That's hard to And reconcile. it's not even that. It's, it's, it's half-life's 24,000 years. Oh, yeah, so. exactly. It'll go on for so much, just much like, longer. Like, crikey. Yeah. 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 Oh, but anyway, back to Pripyat. So, reactor, yeah. Pripyat being the um, town, village, basically, yeah. where the reactor was. That's where all the um, all the workers lived. It's, and it was where it was it? all yeah. set, really, wasn't it? And that's, you know, that's where you now can go and visit. And that's where you see, like, the Ferris wheel, those iconic images that's, and the schools. And the bumper and, cars. All, yeah. The, but now, if you're a scientist, if you're a researcher, they've set up a hotel there and you can you can physically stay there if you're, you know, you've got permission to do your research inside the exclusion zone. Goodness. So back there. So it was Reactor 4. Reactor 4 was the one that blew that had the accident. And it was relatively quickly, it was enclosed in a big concrete and lead-lined shelter. It was called a sarcophagus. Mm. But funnily enough, the other three reactors, obviously this was Reactor 4, you'd assume there'd mm. be a 1, 2 and a 3. They were, they were restarted afterwards. They still needed power. But it has to be said, the safety systems that were put in place were, were improved. Because, of course, if we don't find out how it happened, it will happen again. Exactly. Yeah, that's definitely shoehorned in there. That was a, you, that was a... You spotted that one? <laughs> um, so, yeah, you're right. So due to energy shortages, I mean, the last reactor wasn't turned off, in fact, until December 2000. Crazy, isn't I mean, it? So they've been going for a long time. Um, and it'll take till 2065 for them to be decommissioned completely, those other three reactors. It's mad, isn't it? So they weren't, they weren't allowed to have, you know, tourists or, or just general people who weren't working there visit until 2011. But the workers were still allowed to be there and to be running these other reactors right next door this whole time. Exactly. I mean, scary, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so... Before we go any further, it's probably worth us talking a little bit about atoms because this becomes quite important a bit later on, doesn't it? Mm. So if mm. you can't remember this from school, like me, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> yeah. So you may remember from school the lovely diagrams about the structure of an atom. So we've got a nucleus in the centre which contains protons and neutrons. Now, neutrons have a relative mass of one, which is the same as a proton, 
but they have no charge, whereas protons have a positive charge. And around the nucleus, there are shells of electrons all whizzing about, and each of these electrons have a negative charge. So, so now we understand atoms, uh, what I'd like you to do is to tell me how a nuclear reactor works, um, or I'll have one of these soldiers throw you out of the helicopter. Charming. <laughs> well, I can't personally tell you how a nuclear reactor works, of course, but I do know someone who can. So let's bring in our first clip from this episode's guest. We spoke to Dr. Paul Norman, an expert in nuclear reactor and nuclear power technology at the University of Birmingham. So a good place to start there might be the difference between nuclear fusion and nuclear fission. Yeah, so nuclear fusion is something that's happening actually all of the time in the sun. And in nuclear fusion, as, as the word sort of suggests, we have the joining together of light elements, so light atoms. The, these are typically things like hydrogen or helium. So that's one thing you can do. You can take light things and join them together, and that will release a large amount of energy. You can also do the opposite, which is nuclear fission. So you, instead, you take very heavy elements, things like uranium and plutonium, and you split them apart. The name nuclear fission stems from uh, of a guy called Otto Frisch, and he was the one who coined the term nuclear fission because he recognized that it related, it was very similar sort of process to cell fission in biology, where oh, cells divide. Yeah. So our program, we're talking about Chernobyl. So so what reaction would have been taking place in the reactor at Chernobyl as a, as a nuclear power station? So the Chernobyl-type design is a, a nuclear fission power station. So that's one of the interesting things at the moment is that in terms of nuclear technology, all of our nuclear power stations worldwide at the moment are using fission. Uh, so at Chernobyl, it was actually using nuclear fission with you know uranium fuel rods or uranium-containing fuel rods. Uh, and of course, things you know w went rather as they they shouldn't have done. So, how, so how do you control a nuclear? Because a nuclear reaction, I mean, the old chain reaction thing, it can just keep going and going. But you can control it in a nuclear power station, can't you? That's right. The simple answer is that you have a component of the reactor, which you saw in the, the Chernobyl TV series, the, the, the guy is kind of pushing the button mm -hmm. to insert something called the control rods. And there are these control rods, which in most reactors are suspended above the reactor. In, in actually the Chernobyl design, you have a small number from below the reactor as well. But the idea is that you push these rods in to uh, reduce the, the chain reaction and to lower the reactor power. To raise the power, including during the startup of the reactor, you do the opposite. So you pull the rods out a bit more. And then to shut the reactor down completely, you fully insert the rods. So they, you know, they go in sort of completely. They quickly gobble up the neutrons, which mm -hmm. are the things that are propagating the chain reaction. Uh, and the reaction therefore stops and the reactor shuts down, you know, sort of fairly quickly. But there can be other little sort of subtleties to it. So, you know, depending on the, the system, for example, water reactors, for example, can very inherently sort of control themselves. Uh, and the way this works is that if you slow the neutrons down, they tend to cause fission more easily. And there's a part of the reactor that does that. Uh, in the Chernobyl design, it's actually the, the graphite. Um, there's a bit in the first episode where uh, a piece of graphite has been sort of ejected and blown out through the reactor building following the explosion. And a fireman stoops to 
to pick up the piece of graphite. And he, he later on has a very sort of damaged hand from, you know, from the radiation. So, so that is in, in the Chernobyl type design, that is doing the slowing down of the neutrons. But in a lot of the world's reactors, actually, it's water that does that. And actually, as the water expands out, it helps to, to quell, to act against that effect. So it sort of self-controls itself to some degree through that process. So that's one of the additional subtleties is that if you design the reactor right, it can sort of act to control itself. If you design it wrong, unfortunately, as happened a bit with the Chernobyl design, it can do the opposite. It can run away with itself. So that's an important factor, uh, what we'd call feedback, and that there's safe negative feedback and there's unsafe positive feedback that helps something run out of control. Uh, and the final complicating aspect to the control of reactors is, you know, I mentioned it's these neutrons that keep the, the chain reaction propagating. They initiate each of the fissions. And the nice thing about uh, fission in uranium or plutonium is that it produces more neutrons. So you have one reaction oh, lead to another right, okay, and then yeah, yeah. to another and so on. And that's what we call the chain reaction. Mm. Now, the slight subtlety is that you can also get a very small number of um, neutrons that come out following subsequent radiation, and we call these delayed neutrons. So they're not emitted right at the point where the fission happens, but they're initiated a bit of time after. And the effect that these have is they make it much easier to control a reactor over manageable timescale. Even a computer would not be able to control a nuclear reactor if you didn't have these delayed neutrons. Mm. And one of the reasons I mentioned that is that that was one of the problems at Chernobyl, actually, is that it was sort of operating okay with these delayed neutrons. And then it strayed because of the bad design of the reactor into the unstable regime, which is where these prompt neutrons, as we call them alone, so not the delayed ones, the ones that come off almost instantly, when they can escalate the power on their own, things happen really quickly. And that was, again, what happened at Chernobyl. The atom is a humbling thing. It certainly is. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and it, we should I'll have tell a quote what, jingle, shouldn't we, that goes under all of this? <laughs> Do you know what that would... Series four. <laughs> um, I think it's what really interested me about that bit was the fact that fission was named after the biological process. Because yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't even realise that. As we've that, mentioned before, you put a little brilliant. bit of biology our way, particularly when parceled yes. in some physics, and that gets our attention. <laughs> Yes, yeah. but I think, listen, I think we, we've gone a bit serious there. We've covered the background. Mm -hmm. I think it's time for some of our trademark, fun, slightly silly science research. Yeah, so let's uh, let's deal with some of these common myths then, shall we? Yeah, I mean, glowing in the dark, three-eyed mm -hmm. fish, superpowers, that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, one really common one, an obvious one for us to start with, is, is everything that's radioactive dangerous? Now, the real danger is that if we hear enough lies then we no longer recognise the truth at all. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. You know, after that, I I do feel like a spy on a bench after that. We should start <laughs> spying little spy holes in the newspaper. Trying to find, up trying to find quotes for this has really like given me even more respect for the script writers of this show as well. They've got some really, some really good, yeah, yeah really good definitely. dialogue. Mm. Anyway, back, back so to the myths. Back, back, to the, back to the myths. Uh, so the big myth or the lie about radiation is that it's all man-made and it's all dangerous. Mm. Um, and in fact, radiation is naturally 
present in the environment. Um, you've got radon gas, granite, and even some concrete can emit low levels of radiation. And we experience this all the time as background radiation. We have cosmic rays from the sun as well, providing some background radiation. And in fact, you are experiencing it now, listener and, and co-host as well. And yeah. me, all of oh, us. Everyone, yeah. Let's, let's take something really simple. When was the last time you ate a banana? I had one for breakfast, actually. Yeah, yeah, I did as well, to be fair. (laughs) So uh, believe it or not, bananas are slightly radioactive. Yeah. Now, this is due to an isotope of potassium, which is present in the fruit. So this is potassium 40, which has a half-life of 1.25 billion years. So an isotope is a form of an element that contains equal numbers of protons, but different numbers of neutrons in the nuclei. So this means they have the same chemical properties, but they have a slightly different atomic mass. Yeah. Um, So the big question is, you know, is this harmful? If we're saying bananas are radioactive, is that harmful? In fact, um, somebody estimated that because the levels of radiation in bananas are so low, we would have to eat 10 million bananas at once to have a high enough dose to die from radiation poisoning. I, I don't even know what 10 million bananas would look like. I don't think I'd like to see see that. <laughs> 10 million bananas. An entire forest worth. Um, yeah, so there's there's something, in fact, called the banana equivalent dose. Yay. BED. This is an informal, obviously, measurement mm-hmm. of ionising radiation. And the idea is to kind of make this much more accessible and easier to understand. So it's a great piece of science communication, the old banana equivalent dose. Um, And this compares the dose of radiation to the dose you would expect to get if you ate a banana. So each banana gives you approximately 0.1 microsieverts of radiation, Mm. which is really incredibly low. So it's quite useful, really. It's in Mm. in a similar context to when you're describing the size of things, you might say X football pitches or, you know, it's the same size as so many double decker buses. We can now talk about radiation in terms of the number of bananas. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Love it. So the average dose of exposure to background radiation, so going back to this natural background radiation again, um, is equivalent to 100 BED. So the equivalent to eating 100 bananas. And that's how much radiation you'd be exposed to. So if we put that into context, an X-ray is about the same as 10 BED, 10 bananas. But a Mm -hmm. CT scan is 70,000 BED which sounds like a lot, but it's still very much not dangerous. So the big question is, what about nuclear power then? Let's bring it back to nuclear power. So imagine you were living within 50 miles of a nuclear power plant for a year. How many BED do you think you'd be exposed to on top of the background radiation? I mean, considering the banana equivalent dose is pretty much nothing, Mm. I would imagine quite a lot of banana equivalent doses. You think so? Living Mm. relatively close to a nuclear power station, you'd assume, wouldn't you? Yeah, in fact, it's one. (laughs) So it's equivalent (laughs) to eating an extra banana in a whole year. Wow, okay. Yeah, so so nothing much. And in fact, what's really interesting is if you compare it to a coal-fired power station. So if you live within 50 miles of a coal-fired power station, you're exposed to three extra BED. Wow. Yeah, so so that's interesting in itself, I think, between the two. Yeah, I mean, so so what about Chernobyl then? So the dose mm. for workers who died within a month of the disaster was around apparently six sieverts. So this is 60 million BED. So that, that puts it in context, doesn't it? Mm. Crikey, 60 million. Versus uh, one. Versus one, yes. 
yeah. those poor people living near the living Goodness near the UK me. power plant. Mm. Yeah, so so people living within that thirty kilometer evacuation zone. Um, at the time of the incident. So we saw a lot of those on the programme, didn't we? Kind of mm. looking at the disaster and seeing what's happened. So that depending on where they were at the time of the accident, they were exposed to between 30,000 to 1.5 million BED. Mm. So, and we've sung its praises here, but mm. BED as a measurement does have its flaws. <laughs> well, surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so for one thing, eating bananas doesn't lead to a cumulative dose, right? No. So basically, because of homeostasis, the levels of potassium in, in your body are kept fairly constant. So when you eat a banana, the additional radiation exposure that you get from said banana doesn't actually last very long, only a few hours after you've eaten the banana, because actually mm-hmm. that's the amount of time that it takes for your body just to bring your potassium levels back to normal. Yeah. On to the next myth. Do radioactive materials glow? I mean, we've all seen it on The Simpsons. So yeah, surely so it must be true. There must be some science behind <laughs> if this. If Homer says it glows, it must glow. Um, but in fact, radioactive elements don't glow. Some of them do give off photons, but we can't see them. Um, so photons are, you know, light, um, but we can't actually see it. Um, but some radioactive elements can produce a luminescent effect in other materials. So, for example, radium emits particles that excite the electrons in phosphorescent materials, producing a faint glow. Mm. And so, there's something called the Cherenkov radiation or mm. Cherenkov effect, which is the the blue light or the blue glow that you, you often get associated with nuclear reactors. And so Cherenkov showed that if you expose a bottle of water to radiation, sometimes this water will glow with a blue light. And interesting, this is actually something that Marie Curie herself observed. She observed a pale blue light when she was working with a highly concentrated radium solution 30 years before Cherenkov, but she didn't investigate it. So maybe mm. if she had done, we would have been calling this the uh, the, Curie the Curie radiation effect. or yeah. Curie effect. But anyway, you can see this Cherenkov effect uh, in the blue glow surrounding the kind of underwater nuclear reactors. Go into that water because it must be done. Oh, very dramatic. Got mm. shivers. <laughs> Do you know what? That was, that was probably, that was one of the hardest parts of, the whole series to watch for me mm. when they were going in the water with the the light was um fading and goodness me that was really tense yeah and it, actually the amount of people who who went there knowing there was a risk of radiation poisoning but they knew they they had to do it to save other people's lives and the, the sense know. of duty and community there mm. was was quite impressive yeah, or at least respect. the way it was portrayed we, I mean, we don't really know do we no, but respect to them. Respect mm. to anybody who'll put huge, themselves in that position. Hugely. Mm. Yeah. Um, so the reason why you get this blue glow um, is because um, it's the electromagnetic radiation which is emitted when charged particles like electrons um, move through um, a medium like water, which is dielectric. Um, and what happens is if those particles travel faster than the speed of light through that medium then they will often produce this this blue glow. And of course, particles released by radiation do travel faster than the speed of light in that medium. So Ah. mm, that's why it happens. Um, So let's move on to superpowers then. Yes. (laughs) So ionising radiation can cause damage to the genetic structure of our cells and this can cause mutations, which is the classic comic book storyline yeah. really isn't it you know someone gets bitten by a radioactive spider next thing you know they wake up in the morning and they can essentially fly and squirt yeah. web from their hands but um this isn't really what happens 
That's no. that's why they're in comic books because they're not <laughs> in real life. Um, yeah. But actually, so actually, what what happens is the changes to the DNA that are caused by the ionizing radiation will be much more likely to lead to a higher cancer risk as well as other physical symptoms. None of this kind of flight glow in the dark nonsense, unfortunately. No, it's really really disappointing, isn't it? Because you know, it's a shame. We all want superpowers. Imagine and... how many superheroes Chernobyl, Chernobyl could have led to. Yeah, had that would have been amazing. Had that science been it? different. Yeah, but... Would it, though? Is there such thing as too many superheroes? Oh, do you know? I mean, how many people are living in the town at the time? That That's a lot... That's a very highly concentrated people with... Groups of people with superpowers, wouldn't it? Mm. They'd be all in one area. Would so. they all have the same superpower? Would they all be impacted mm. differently? What's the origin story? Yeah. We need to do something on superheroes next series. <laughs> I think we do. <laughs> Right, listen, let's let's bring it back, Karen. Let's bring it yeah. back to Paul before we end up in some kind of total nonsense, myth-busting chain reaction, okay? Let's uh, let's insert the metaphorical graphite rods. <laughs> let's allow the water to cool us down and cast our eyes to the future. Mm. Is it going to be nuclear-powered? You know, we can't try to answer this question without looking at Chernobyl, but also one of history's other big nuclear-powered disasters. Yeah, a time for a trip to Japan, I think. Um, so we need to look at Fukushima, don't we? And it's an interesting case study, actually, to compare to Chernobyl. Um, the more we know about what happened in both of these incidents, the better we can design future power stations. And that's the important thing, the key mm. thing. Because if we're going to have a low carbon future, which we've got to have because of the climate crisis, mm. you know, nuclear has probably got to be in that mix if we're going to be able to generate enough energy, particularly if we're you know all travelling around in electric cars and that kind of thing, is where's this energy coming from? Um, so let's hear what Paul had to say when we asked him about the general public's fear of a nuclear-powered future. Now, with nuclear power, I do think, yes, don't forget we've had, you know, nuclear power stations uh, about uh, 75 years. And, of course, you know, the, the, the accidents that we know of are uh, Chernobyl and uh, Fukushima. And the, the incident at Chernobyl is really rather down to the design of the reactor. The materials that it uses that were largely responsible for that, which are graphite and water, are usually common materials in reactors that can operate quite safely when they're deployed on their own. So the issue was actually when you tried to combine them together, which is what the Chernobyl design tries to do, it can be unsafe. If you get into the regime where the quickly emitted neutrons, the prompt ones control things, everything can happen really fast. That's like what happens in a nuclear bomb at that point. And as I say, nuclear power stations are really not like nuclear bombs unless you design mm. it very badly wrong, which is <laughs> what, what, what happened at Chernobyl. Um, yeah. So I don't foresee that happening. You know, as I say, graphite and water, that is not really seen in any together in mm. any other reactor type apart from the Chernobyl design. Now, of course, Fukushima is slightly different because it, you know, is based largely upon a natural disaster. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, in a sense, the sort of slightly sensationalist type side of things does apply rather much there as well in that, you know, you have a tsunami that is predicted to have killed something like 20,000 people. And you have a nuclear accident, which is thought to have killed virtually nobody. Uh, but because it's a nuclear accident, you know, that was the thing that was making a lot of the front pages. So, mm. uh, and, you know, they're completely different, of course, on their 
their scales. Yeah. And, and, and it probably draws, I think, one's mind or attention a, a little bit to some of these, you know, saying about nuclear power in the future. And of course, one of the big things that humanity is is facing is climate change, of course. Yeah. And that is, you know, a virtual certainty unless we we actually change significantly our ways. Uh, and, and of course, you know, n- nuclear power is something that can help, can, you know, be one of the contributors because it doesn't emit CO2 really while it's running and it, it emits a, a little bit of CO2 in the sort of construction process. So it's it's CO2 emissions are very low from nuclear. They're about the same as wind power for the same amount of kind of power power output that you that you that you get. Um, so you know I, I would argue in a sense that nuclear could be seen as a sort of a green, you know, a, a green option for the future. It's about twenty percent at the moment that's um, contributing, isn't it, to to our electricity in the UK? And there was talk of producing a new reactor or producing lots of mini reactors potentially as well, wasn't there? So what's the thinking behind the mini reactor? So one thing you could do is that you could try and build really big, high powered reactors. So that is the sort of flavor, if you like, that is being gone for at Hinkley Point, which is actually close to where I come from. So my, my father worked at Hinkley Point. So as a small boy, that was what got me interested oh, in nuclear physics and, uh, and nuclear technology yes. <laughs> but that you know the, the flavor of the new reactors they're building there is to build very big uh high-powered systems you, you might expect you get a bit more sort of bang for your buck if you like yeah. because of the high power output now the alternative idea as you as you say is to build uh small what we call small modular reactors so smrs mm. and there are various companies looking at, at these worldwide one of the main ones in the uk is rolls-royce Oh, so uh, they have an expertise, you know, that would lend itself to the idea of, as you say, developing smaller reactors instead that you could potentially build in a factory. So or or most of the components you would build in a factory and then you can sort of ship these things to site, maybe even semi assembled. Now, you probably with the small reactors, because you're having to build a number of them to meet the same total amount of power. Um, So from that economies of scale, you lose out a little bit. But there are slight tricks to it in that one of the main um, challenges economically for a a, a conventional big nuclear power station such as Hinkley Point is that you've got to invest a lot of money up front to build the thing because it's enormous. And the idea behind the smaller reactors is that, of course, you're not necessarily getting as much money back, at least not initially, but you've got a smaller investment to put in yeah. up front. So that can yeah. be favorable. And related to that, what you could imagine is that you're, of course, you build the first of them and you start to get some money back as you're then looking oh, to plan to yes. build the next one. To help with the building, yeah. Mm. So what we've got there is almost small kind of factory built nuclear reactors could well be one of the answers to not only how we power our future in a low carbon way, but also how we afford to make that transition into a low carbon fuel mix. Yeah. And I mean, like everything, it's hard to make predictions about the future, especially as we're not even sure how we're going to get out this current pandemic. Mm. Um, mm. But it's we got to move away from this short termism and start thinking long term. You know, Absolutely. how are we going to get this energy? If we're all going to be driving around in electric cars over the next 20, 30 years, that energy has got to come from somewhere. Well, one of my biggest 
problems with that kind of school of thought is uh, yes obviously all of our fuel needs to come from renewable green or low carbon sources but also our fuel cons- our, our energy consumption we need to address that we can't just yeah. go along merrily consuming energy at the rate that we currently do particularly if the population is expanding and the demand is inc- like we need to be as with everything we do we need to start learning to live within our means and in moderation but anyway before <laughs> i go off on another climate rant let's go back to chernobyl <laughs> Yeah, so actually this year, because it's the 35th anniversary and we're in 2021, mm. um, there have been a number of papers coming out at the beginning of the year as part of this anniversary. And we thought we'd have a look at a couple of them. Yeah, so one of them actually suggests that the Chernobyl survivors do not pass on excess mutations to their children. So this this was a really interesting piece mm. of research. So the team looked at the genomes of 200 Chernobyl survivors and that of their children and the worry there was basically that the exposure to the radiation would have affected the sperm or the eggs of the survivors. So these children were conceived after the disaster. Mm. They weren't pregnant uh, or kind of the, they weren't fetuses yeah. when it happened. So they found that there were no additional mutations above and beyond normal in the survivors' children. So that was a, a pretty good thing to come out of it, yeah. isn't it? That, that you're not necessarily passing on any particular additional risk to your children. Yeah, which is really, really important. Mm. Um, And another one looked at crops and they actually looked at crops grown outside the exclusion zone around 50 kilometres from Chernobyl. So the exclusion zone is is around 30 kilometres from Chernobyl. Mm. And they found that these crops, about 50% of the crops were still contaminated with strontium-90 and or cesium-137, which is of concern, obviously. And these were above the Ukrainian um, official safety limits. Yeah, and I mean, this may well stay the case for at least another decade in terms of mm. the crops. Um, you know, we talked earlier about the radioactive half-lives and the persistence in soil, particularly of cesium-137. Mm. But one of the main reasons it's of concern is also that the Ukrainian government actually stopped monitoring goods containing strontium-90 in 2013. So the, the authors of this paper really stressed that actually they, this regulation should be reinstated and they should still be monitoring this. Yeah, yeah, because you know that those goods are being exported all over the country and potentially into other countries. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it just shows that to be a scientist is to be naive. We are so focused on our search for the truth, we fail to consider how few actually want us to find it. But it's always there, whether we see it or not, whether we choose to or not. That's a good one. Mm. That's a really like that good quote. I like that a lot. Mm. So I guess uh, we ought to move on to some of those old bits and pieces, some of those other ones that we teased you with at the beginnings. We've talked superpowers, we've talked bananas. It's now time to talk hot pink bras, ladies and gentlemen. This is magnificent, isn't it? So (laughs) we have dipped into the Ig Nobel Prizes pretty much every episode this series Mm. because we're finding some really amazing pieces (laughs) of research that have been the, the Ig Nobel Prize winners. So this one is fantastic. A Ukrainian scientist called Alana Bodnar, when she was treating her patients who were victims of the Chernobyl disaster, she realised that actually if they had been, if they had had some kind of access to a filter, even a very crude mm. filter at the time, they would have drastically reduced their radiation poisoning. Yeah. So she produced an emergency bra. Like you which, do. Yeah. <laughs> so the cups can be separated out and converted into face masks and you can actually buy this online. And this is great. So my, I had two thoughts when I first heard of this. I had yeah. three. The first one being <laughs> hot pink. That's not the most practical nice. colour. Um, two, great. You've got two boobs. That means you've mm. got a, a filter for you and a friend. Yeah, bonus. Three, 
You're going to have to wear one every day, though, because you never know which day is going to be emergency disaster exactly. bra so day. All of your bras have to be hot pink and emergency bras. I know. <laughs> Sorted. So, so brilliant. So brilliant. Yeah. I love when science has a practical use in the real and, world. And once you finish listening to today's uh, episode, ladies and gentlemen, go and find the website that has those hot pink bras on because they are amazing. Impressive. You can purchase them. Um, so another thing Should is Should we get that- them for our road trip to Chernobyl? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. That would you, be a really me, good idea, actually. Emergency bras. Emergency hot pink yeah, didn't, bras. didn't see that on Ben Fogel's documentary, did we? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so one of the other things that radiation is used uh, for in a positive way is uh, it's used to authenticate wine. Now, you might think, why mm. do I need to authenticate wine? I mean, it's either wine or <laughs> it's not wine. Don't need to authenticate the kind of wine that I buy. I'll tell you that no, right now. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, no, same here. But um, you and I aren't... Um, massive rich rich wine connoisseurs after all no so people buy wine and they invest in it the same way you might buy a painting or a house in order to invest your money and make you know make money over time and sell it in the future um so for example in 2018 um the most expensive bottle of wine at the time of recording was sold for over half a million dollars and it was bottled in 1945 and sold for over half a million dollars i can't i can't even quite wrap my head around that no um, and then back in 2010, there was a bottle from 1869. Now, that's going to be vinegar pretty much, Gosh. isn't it? Can you imagine? Yeah, like, sold... like you said, you're not buying these to drink. You're not cracking them open at a special occasion. No, no. I mean, this one sold for almost a quarter of a million dollars back in 2010. I mean, so let's say you were buying that 1869 Chateau Lafitte to Rothschild, right? Mm-hmm. You need to know it is actually a Chateau Lafitte Rothschild and not just some old plonk that somebody's put in there that they, they kind of brewed up a couple of weeks ago. Mm. So how do you determine that it is actually this ancient wine? Um, and and actually, cesium-137, which you've mentioned a couple of times, is uh, only in the environment after nuclear weapons have been tested and that kind of thing. So only after we've developed nuclear power, nuclear, te- nuclear weapons, nuclear testing. Um, so if you looked at the wine and it had been bottled before that time, it should not have any cesium-137 in it. So you can use that to authenticate whether it's genuine or not. Mm. But of course, in order to do that, you've got to open the bottle of wine and then you can't sell it onto somebody else for record money no. as a result. No, So, yeah, luckily it's a dilemma we'll never have. <laughs> I, yeah, I think, I think we probably <laughs> won't be facing this one. No, no. Well, from wine to one of my other favourite things, bumblebees. (laughs) Yay! Um, Did you know that bumblebees, which are exposed to a kind of chronic low-dose radiation like that, that still persists at the Chernobyl exclusion zone, it will actually increase their metabolic rate and therefore their food consumption. So Mm. this means that they will just be going absolutely mad, trying to get as much pollen, as much nectar as they possibly can, but they're also metabolising it really, really quickly. And it means that actually, if we're looking at the whole kind of colony as a whole, they are less likely to get as much to the young because of yeah. what you know what they do is they bring the nectar and they feed the young but if they're needing to eat it themselves and they're metabolizing it more there's less likely to be able to support a big colony and of course if we think even bigger picture bees are one of the most important pollinators that we have in terms of our crops and you know over 30% of all all the food that we eat in the UK relies on pollination so if we're having issues with the colonies and the colonies are collapsing because the bees metabolic rate is going a bit mad we might also then have problems with our crop pollination and our food our food security yeah 
So it's a really, really important that mm. we, you know, we keep these levels of radiation down to natural levels and not expose all these organisms to excess levels of radiation. Mm. Now, talking about organisms being exposed to excess <laughs> levels of radiation, um, they found a radiation absorbing mold at the Chernobyl nuclear reactor site called Cladosporium. Here we go. Ferrospermum. I think I said that right. Now, my Latin is not brilliant. Um, So they found it and they've actually taken this mould to the International Space Station um, and it's been shown to absorb cosmic rays. And you're thinking, well, amazing. why why would you want to do that? Why would you want to take mould to the nuclear power power station? Why would you want to take mould to the International Space Station? And the reason is we're thinking about Mars here, people. So if we're going to establish a (laughs) colony on Mars, yeah, Mm. big picture, colony on Mars, we need some kind of radiation shield. And it may be that fungus like this that absorbs radiation can be used um, as a radiation shield. And they've actually found more than one species that they're trying to to use as radiation shields. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. One of the things that fascinates me the most is kind of our search for new things like antibiotics Mm. um, and the the lengths that we all go to, whether it is, you know, dredging up sludge from the bottom of the ocean or going diving in sewage, or in this case, hanging out in a nuclear exclusion zone to see what organisms we can find that we've not encountered before and try and work out how we could use them um, in our in our daily lives as as, as humans and to, to support what we're what we're doing as a human race. And I love the fact that we found something that actually could, could help us <laughs> help us colonize Mars. I know madness. Absolutely, that, that'd madness. be one for Jake, wouldn't it? We should have. Uh, oh yes, yeah, he'd have loved that. Yeah, mm. from our um, from our Red Dwarf episode, there, listeners. If you yeah. haven't heard that one, go back and listen. Yeah, to that one. do go back and listen to it. Is that it's uh, the episode before this one? Um, so. I think that's pretty much all we've got time for this series, isn't it? Which is a shame. I've really enjoyed, absolutely loved recording this series. It's been great fun. God, we always do, don't we? I wish we had more time to be able to do longer seasons, but, you know, perhaps one day, perhaps one day. Yeah. Um, so let's have a quick look at some of the quotes that we got in. You might have been able to spot them because we did laugh at most of them. So we had, <laughs> tell the truth, these men work in the dark, they see everything. That was, you know, that was really good. I really liked that bit. That was when the miners were being drafted in to come and start clearing the, um, clearing the zone itself. And and I like the fact that, you know, whether this happened or not, or whether this was creative license and they put this in the script, I like the fact that the guy in charge of the workforce was just like, don't lie to these guys. You're asking them to do something that's really dangerous and really scary. Just be honest with them. They, mm-hmm. They'll know what's going on. And I, I liked that. So mm-hmm. we also had, if we don't find out how this happened, it will happen again. Mm-hmm. and tell me how a nuclear reactor works or I'll have one of those soldiers throw you out of the helicopter. That's my favourite one. I that like was that a good one. one. Yeah. That was a good one. I bet they didn't actually say that. No, probably not. The atom is a humbling thing. Mm-hmm. The real danger is that if we hear enough lies, then we no longer recognise the truth at all. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. Like that one. Mm-hmm. I had a really fun link where I managed to get in chain reaction, graphite rods and water to cool us down. That was that was really good. I like that. Uh, you said get into that water because it must be done. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty pivotal moment in the scene. And a really nice one to end on. Loved this. To be a scientist is to be naive. We are so focused on our search for the truth. We fail to consider how few of us actually want to find it. But it's always there, whether we see it or not, or whether we choose to or not. 
Yeah. And that was very much focusing on the scientists in the show, wasn't it? Mm. I like that. Yeah. Mm. So um, hopefully you really enjoyed this episode. And if you've not heard the rest of Series 3, do go back and have a listen. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Um, and please subscribe because obviously we've got Series 4 coming out in the autumn. And we've already thought of a few uh, few episodes for that series. So do subscribe and then you'll, you'll hear our latest episodes as they come out. And leave us a review as well, please, because that really helps in terms of new listeners. So if you've not had the opportunity to leave us a review, please review one of our episodes from this series. Definitely. And you can keep up to date with what we're up to, particularly in this gap between seasons. Every now and again, Mm -hmm. we might let you know what we're up to for season four. And you can also enjoy some bonus content over on our Instagram at Small Screen SciPod, Twitter at Small Screen Sci and Facebook at Small Screen Sci. And if you fancy it, because this this show does take quite a lot of work to get together because we do manage to speak to some really cool guests, Mm. you can actually support us and help us out with some of the running costs for just a couple of pounds a month if you fancy it over on Patreon. And if you join Patreon, you become one of our members who receive a monthly audio or video bonus bundle where we have a little chat and share some extra bits from some of our brilliant guests. Yeah, so thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next series or, drumroll please, one of our live events. Hurrah! (laughs) (laughs) You'll definitely have to find us on social media to find details of those. Yes, indeed. We'll see you very soon. Thanks so much for listening. Bye! (laughs) Bye!